Welcome to the Human Theatre, a safe space teemed with an abundance of exploration about what it means to be a human in this world. Optimal health is your birthright and should not be a luxury. Knowing how your body works and understanding everything that relates to your human experience comes with the package. My name is Kelsey Buchholter, and I am here to dive deep into all things mental and physical health, longevity, nutrition, human consciousness, creativity, and more. Join me in normalizing the concept of what it means to be a human and the importance of being you. Enjoy the show. Hello humans, my name is Kelsey. I am a singer-songwriter, actor, dancer, nutrition advisor, health coach, and your host. And welcome to the 15th show housed in the Human Theatre. Slowly and surely, we are growing. (laughs) Today, I was honoured to speak to someone who I look up to and commend for her drive and hunger to continue to learn and help people. Dr. Olivia Lesler is a medical doctor with an interest in psychoneuroimmunology and preventative medicine. Prior to her medical degree, MBBS, from Bond University in Queensland, Australia, Olivia completed her undergraduate degree in international relations with a triple major including French and diplomacy. She has certificates in remedial therapies including herbs, nutrition and acupressure. Post-med, Dr. Olivia has completed an aeromedical evacuation course, helicopter underwater escape training, a certificate in medical nutrition management, and an advanced certificate in skin cancer medicine. Dr. Olivia practices all aspects of medicine with an interest in complex conditions, mystery illnesses, prevention, biohacking, and individualized medicine. She is not averse to short therapeutic runs of medications and supplements, but her main focus is on whole food, removing triggers, and treating the underlying cause. Despite her list of professional qualifications and accolades, Olivia has a hunger to continue to learn as much as she can. This is a quality that I share and admire. Moreover, as you will hear, Olivia has remained inquisitive and not once took her first bout of medical training as gospel. The beauty about science is that science is forever changing, and personally, when I seek a medical practitioner, I would hope that they are keeping their pulse on the inevitable evolution of science. It's definitely a red flag for me when someone is dogmatic in their thinking. And it is raining outside. Before I get on to today's show, don't forget about your special 10% discount on any Oxford HealthSpan product when you enter Kelsey as the discount code at checkout. That's K-E-L-S-E-Y, all capitals, as the discount code upon checkout. The link will be in the show notes. Also, a disclaimer... The content in this show is purely for educational and informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. If you feel you have a concern, please seek a registered healthcare practitioner. And without further ado, here's my chat with Dr. Olivia Lesler. Dr. Olivia Lesler, welcome to the Human Theatre. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So excited to have you on. Um, I met you at the Biohacker Summit and it was an absolute honor 
And I mean, I could have spoken to you for hours because, you're, yeah, we, well, I connect, yeah. That was an amazing summit. I mean, you know, we were all there. We were all hungry to learn. The It was the perfect environment to just get, you know, talking about everything and anything health and well-being, right? 100%. And that's exactly why I have you on here. Um, firstly, can you tell our audience where, where are you currently in the world? Ah, okay. So I am um, in Australia and I'm at a clinic that I work with very closely in Sydney. It's called Singulum Health and it is a brain health optimization center. That's I'm going to definitely ask you more about this, um, but yes. I suppose <laughs> before we begin, if you want to just give us a bit of a backstory, who you are, what you do, all the things. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, so I'm a medical practitioner. I finished uh, my medical um, studies and training in Australia, um, but I was very lucky to have been um, invited to work in the U.S., under some very prominent doctors who are well known in the functional medicine field. So I was in the US for the most part of 2019, came back to Australia in 2020 to sort out my visa. And we all know the story after that. So um, I've been in Australia for the last two years and building a career here now. Um, I guess there's a lot of happenstances that have happened for me in my life with regards to my career trajectory such that I've had amazing mentors, um, job opportunities and so now um, I still work for a uh, concierge and private medical center in LA, Los Angeles. I now part own a longevity functional medicine clinic in London with Dr. Tamsin Lewis. And I'm here in Sydney. I'm one of the primary doctors for a brain health optimization center called Singulum Health, which I mentioned before. And I work with a world-renowned neurosurgeon called Dr. Charlie Teo. And I work closely with uh, Dr. Pete Smith up in Queensland, Gold Coast and Brisbane where I do a lot of psychoneuroimmunology with complex chronic patients with um, allergies and other immunological issues like mast cell activation syndrome, uh, POTS, you know, sort of new and emerging diseases. Um, and I get to travel. I love going to conferences. And this is born because when I was uh, growing up in a family of medics and um, allied health professionals, that's what we loved. It was reading talking, living, breathing, going to all these different conferences. And for us, it's not work. For us, it's fun. So that's when I met you, that was my second of seven conferences that I wound up going to in um, June and July of 2022. <laughs> I'm so jealous. Unbelievable. <laughs> Yeah, um, so that's that's where I that's how I got to where I am now. I amazing, guess. I'm amazing. Constantly looking for answers and constantly asking why for patients. Yeah, I I really really do respect and admire that because I mean, health and life is a lifelong journey, and it is so important to, I mean, especially as a healthcare practitioner and a doctor, to be able to constantly learn and seek new information. I think it's like such a safety factor like in as a patient going to doctors like to be able to know that this doctor is keeping 
his or her pulse on all the new research and information because science is always changing and we're always finding new things all the time. Always changing, always changing. And, you know, it's amazing how in the last two years, how much my practice has changed. And I'm very proud of that, you know. And so now my caveats with a lot of my patients are, um, what I'm saying today may change tomorrow. Mm. Um, if I don't know, I say I don't know. And, um, you know, I, I think that anybody who is too married to doctrine, too married to dogma, I think that's a real problem for patients. You know, patients yeah. rely on us um, to to be asking the questions that they don't know how to ask, mm. to present it to them in a way that sings to them, right? And it's yeah. not necessarily that, um, you know, for example, there are plenty of patients who know what they need to do, eat better, move better, you know, not smoke, all these sorts of things. But we have to present information to patients in a way that they resonate with. Mm. And that's a skill in itself, which I'm constantly learning. Totally, totally. And I have so many questions. But I think just to go back to a few of the basics, um, uh, you mentioned functional medicine. Now, mm -hmm. I don't know if you want to maybe give a brief just like definition of what functional medicine is and how it differs to, you know, conventional Western medicine. Sure. Okay, so, you know, it's funny. Functional medicine is actually a word that I now use simply to help patients find me. The patients who find me are looking for someone who's going to spend the time, who is more interested in trying to solve why they're unwell than to patch them up with medications or supplements to quell the symptoms. Um, I think that functional medicine is actually, for, for, for me anyway, I can't speak for others, but functional medicine for me is actually just medicine, the way it should be practiced, in that we're trying our best to keep up to date with the latest. We are looking at root cause, root causes for our patients, trying to make sure that we address why they got sick in the first place. And it's about empowering our patients, giving them autonomy. You know, most patients know more about their bodies and their diseases than we ever will. So it's about trying to develop a partnership with patients. Mm. Functional medicine is a, you know, some a, kind of a new iteration of integrative medicine. And it's, it's not relying too heavily on any one therapy. Certainly, conventional medicine seems to have unfortunately um, too heavily relied on pharmaceutical interventions, I, I feel. Um, there is absolutely a time and place for pharmaceuticals, but there, is there are many, many tools in our toolbox, and it is a dis it's a disservice to patients if we don't at least try to use some of the, um, the other tools. Yeah. That's so important because, I mean, as human beings, we are holistic beings. Yes, and yes. and I love the message of, well, not the message, but like I love how, I mean, at the end of the day, we have to be our own advocates as people and as patients and whatever we are. And oh, yes. yeah, I think, you know, to empower the individual and see that they actually have more power than they think that they do, um, you know, through functional medical practices that, as you, as you mentioned, you also use the word integrative so, mm. you know, lifestyle factors, we have so much more power than we think we do in, 
you know, our current state of health. And that's, I mean, I was going to ask in your medical training, did that, I mean, did you ever discuss integrative or lifestyle interventions or nutrition? Oh, you know, the the answer to that is no. Um, Of course, we get told that um, nutrition, diet, food is important, but we're not given much more than that because that then falls into the um, the remit of dietitians, you know, we sort of hand off the ball to them. Um, it's weird because so the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners here in Australia does state that generally speaking, lifestyle factors need to be discussed with patients in context of their chronic diseases as a first port of call. But a lot of doctors, myself included back in the day, knew very little else apart from eat a well-balanced diet and exercise. Now, considering this is meant to be first line for many things, considering this is profound um, and considering that this is going to, you know, allows the patient to take some control, it's, um, it's a shame that we're not talking more about these things because the evidence is that not only diet and movement, but also mindset, breathing, sleep are incredibly important. And I don't want to understate um, the centrality they have to a patient's health and well-being. And I, you know, I'm not even talking about optimization here. I'm talking about trying to pull patients back back from the brink of a complex chronic condition. Um, yeah, it's it's we didn't get nearly as much well we barely got any training in this in medical school to be honest sure. with you. and yeah I mean as you on your website as well like <laughs> lifestyle factors are play such a significant role in in health and I mean lifestyle factors as you mentioned nutrition mm-hmm. sleep movement all these things and I yeah it's and I mean, also, like at the end of the day, like you only have a certain amount of time with a patient as well. And I think to cover a lot of things, it's it's difficult. I I do respect all doctors because it's not. Yeah, I don't think there's any malicious intent of not necessarily addressing last yes. interventions. It's just more. I mean, yeah, time pressure. Hundred percent. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um. So I um I, I would love to get more into these complex conditions and the mystery illnesses that you do speak about um I I don't know if you want to elaborate on them like just solely like that or if you want to discuss Mm -hmm. them under I suppose mind body and threat perception and psycho neuroimmunology which I would love to get your elaboration on all of those things so right well um look let's maybe start off with the fact that uh, I think most people accept that we are not living in line with our evolution. Yeah. We're eating food that's very highly processed. We're living in boxes. We don't see enough sunlight. We have constant stress or distress as opposed to the bouts of stress um, that we would have experienced back in the day and then going back to some sort of baseline without. Um, We don't no longer live in villages. We have very, as in, you know, we have very little community not like what we used to before we no longer witness our neighbors children's like it's we're not living in step with our evolution Mm. and for most people it's fine it's like conventional medicine 80 percent 
of patients, 80% of their diseases, 80% of the time, it is no problem. But when patients start to falter, when patients start to, uh, you know, display issues with regards to the kind of lifestyles that we are uh, faced with in the modern world, what, what do we do then? Right, what's happening? And this is where psychoneuroimmunology can come into play because I think a lot of people um, maybe don't realize that our brains are constantly, constantly calculating threat. You know, the evolutionary purpose is survival mm. and then procreation. It's pretty basic. This idea about sense of purpose, love, these are all higher order things. You know Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Yes. Our brain needs to feel safe first before it can do the higher order stuff. But what does safety mean? Safety for the majority of people is, you know, being able to pay your mortgage and all that kind of thing. But it, if you wanted to really break it down, safety is your prefrontal cortex or your more modern brain being in charge the majority of time and you are not falling victim to spikes of your sympathetic nervous system taking over control. So let's use an example of food sensitivities. We're seeing a lot of those these days. And this is, I'm not talking about celiac disease or hardcore IgE driven allergies. I'm talking food sensitivities, food intolerances, where one minute you have you were able to eat, you know, broccoli and sprouts, and the next minute you have issues, and then bam, before you know it, you've been diagnosed with you know, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or you have to go on a FODMAPS diet, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, you're sensitive to the disaccharides and you have to take them out of your diet. What happened there? What's the what are the biochemical drivers of that? What are the physiological drivers of that? So we know that there are some ion channels. I mean, actually, Kelsey, how how uh, how technical can I get? How technical you can, can I get with this? I personally would love you to get as technical as possible because I am thirsty for this knowledge. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's go. Right. <clears throat> So there are a whole bunch of receptors, which are essentially threat receptors, and they're called TRIPS, transient receptor potentials. These ion channels um, are evolutionarily conserved, most of them, and they pick up a range of things in the environment to feed back to your brain so that your brain can calculate threat and risk. They will sense pH shifts, uh, chemicals, endogenous and otherwise. They will sense temperature, hot and cold, as well as um, pressure. So some of them are mechanoreceptors. And this massive family of trips, there's, there's the TRPAs, the TRPVs, the TRPMs, and so on and so forth. This massive family, each one of these ion channels has a little window um, of which it's activated, in which it's activated. And, you know, pe people who um, they grew up in a cold country. And so when they go to a hot country, they find it very, very uncomfortable and, and can't stand it. Those are the trips. 
those are the trips saying to the brain, oh my gosh, th this temperature is too hot, it's a threat. Is it a threat? Is it a threat? And your nervous system, your let's call it lizard brain. I think a lot of people have heard the term lizard brain. It's not yeah. particularly accurate, but it, we get a sense of what it means. The lizard brain then goes, no, no, I, I see what you're saying. No, it's it's not a threat. It's not a threat. And then before you know it, you acclimatize. Those are your TRPs. Those are your trips recalibrating what is considered a threat and what is not. Patients who smell perfume get a migraine, get a headache because of it. Those are their trips being, uh, <laughs> those are their trips being tripped <laughs> and telling the brain, I think this is a problem. And the brain, unfortunately, coming back with going, yeah, I think it's a problem too. And then a whole bunch of other chemical cascades happen from there. There's another group of patients who up till recently have been told it's all in their head, i.e. they're making it up. And those are the patients who get migraines when the weather changes. Now, when the weather changes, that's a combination of pressure, which is activating certain trips, temperature, again, activating certain trips like trip A1, for example, and that combination, that those notes that are being played by the trips, that, that song is perceived by the lizard brain as being a threat. Now, how do we get to the stage? Can we change these things? Absolutely. And that is the point of psychoneuroimmunology, where you talk to the lizard brain or the amygdala or the insula, or, you know, more ancient parts of the brain, which are, are driving primitive programs. You say to it, you take control. We are safe. We are okay. These notes that you're hitting, these songs that you're playing, these are not threat songs. I mean, it's we know plenty of anecdotal um, stories in our lives. You know, you and your 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 listeners, whereby uh, your younger children can associate weather with good things or bad things, you know, so we'll have a story of when the son, when a father is a fly and fly out worker, for example, and he comes home uh, during summer and the child will then correlate summer with happiness, fun and love. And this is the kind of person that later on it's, you know, summer really makes him happy more so than the average person. And that's because the brain has made this association. I guess I didn't want to bring up bad associations because those are the ones that we tend to, <laughs> to yeah. know more of, but there are certainly plenty of those as well. Associating certain memories with smells, music, fabrics and colors. Those are all the, 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 those are all the songs of trips. Now we can change those trip notes, those trip songs, reacclimate yourself, but that has to be a conscious thing. So um, that so food intolerances. If you are someone who's constantly eating on the run, you are stressed. The only time that you get out of your cave, I mean, your office is for that half hour at, at, uh, in the midday sun and you eat on the run. Now, what happens when you eat on the run? You don't eat in a parasympathetic state, rest and digest state, and that's called that for a reason. You eat in a fight or flight mode. Mm. When you eat in a rest and digest state, the way you're meant to eat, you're smelling the food, you're handling the produce, you're 
you know, tasting it a little bit, you're giving your brain and uh, time to tell the organs of digestion that food is on its way. So prepare yourself. So your gastric acid starts to pump out and your digestive enzyme from your pancreas starts to pump as well. And, you know, the gut motility is getting itself all primed. And that is eating in a way that you're meant to. Anything that diverts from that, you start running the risk of things like indigestion, reflux, all that kind of stuff. So if you're eating in a sympathetic state, fight, flight, fight, flight, fight, flight, what constitutes fight or flight? That is your adrenal glands pumping out um, cortisol, adrenaline, noradrenaline, and these chemicals are the same and have been for millions of years through all our stages of evolution. In other words, your brain cannot tell the difference from a very subconscious split second point of view, whether or not you are have lost your car keys or you're being chased by a saber toothed tiger. It is the same chemicals that are being pumped out. So you eat on the run. You're basically in fight or flight. You're not producing enough gastric acid. So you get reflux. Um, or you get feelings, oh sorry, you get feelings of indigestion rather. And before you know it, you're getting all these food intolerances. Why? It's because when you're in sympathetic mode, your brain is going to tag all the things that are happening at that stage because it wants to know what song was playing, what song of your trips is playing to be causing those that adrenaline, that cortisol release. And so tagging that as a problem. The issue with that is that when it sees the same thing over and over again, and in our modern food, you know, it's the usual, like, you know, whatever, gluten or dairy or something like that, it will start to tag benign foods as problems, or it will tag gluten as an issue. Now, there are, oh, look, there are other issues with things like gluten, especially in certain countries where wheats are sprayed with too much glyphosate or what have you. But <clears throat> that is sort of some of the basics that can happen with food intolerances, which can be recalibrated. That is, your brain has tagged a certain food as a problem. And usually it's the environment within which you're eating that food that informs the brain or tells the brain or rather your brain perceives that food as being a problem. That is an example of psychoneuroimmunology at work. Um, thank you for that. So much that I want to ask you. Um, I love the breakdown of just you know, just to the almost cellular level of how our bodies are always listening and always responding to our environments. And I love also how you, um, you know, brought into awareness, I've been saying this for a long time, and it's, I mean, it just motivates me personally to want to better myself. But, you know, our brains cannot decipher between a perceived or a literal physical stress. And oh, that is huge. 100%. That yes. is huge because, I mean, even if we're conscious or we're not conscious, if we are feeling stressed and our mind is just feeling stressed, that, that as you have mentioned, has literal physiological effects on the body. Yes. 
And I yes. mean, every moment of the day, our bodies are responding. I mean, from the minute we are born to the minute we pass on, our minds never turn off. Yes. And I think you that's know, and huge. constantly trying to get information, right? Because it needs to keep calculating mm. risk and threat for you to keep you safe, to keep you alive. I mean, that is the whole point of, um, from an evolutionary point of view, right? It is yeah. survival, procreation. Okay. Perception, 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 calculation, calculation, calculation. What can it do to to change things for you so that you will definitely survive as opposed to be at risk for not? Um, I deal with a lot of chronic fatigue syndrome patients. And this is a cl- classic example where patients push are pushed too far and their brains are so scared that it shuts you down puts you into a forced hibernation, incredible fatigue. How does this work? How does this happen? Why does this happen? I mean, look, we've got a lot of theories. We have a lot of great um, reasons why, and they can be super simple as, okay, you've got chronic fatigue syndrome because your thyroid's not, not happy. Fix the thyroid, you fix the chronic fatigue syndrome. But you know, in um, some of the research that I've done with the NCNED here in Australia, and that's the National Center for Neuroimmunology and Emerging Diseases, we found that in some patients with chronic fatigue syndrome, and most recently we published a paper on long COVID, which has found the same thing, there is an issue with the trip, transient receptor potential, the threat receptor I was discussing earlier, specifically TRIP-M3 transient receptor potential melastatin-3, which is found on the NK cell. That's the natural killer cell. And the natural killer cell is one of your first antiviral cells, right? It's a, mm. one of the soldiers. We have found that there is a dysfunction to the cell. It doesn't, uh, sorry, a dysfunction to the ion channel. It doesn't work as well. And for these patients, there are quite a few which respond very positively to low-dose naltrexone which is a repurposed pharmaceutical drug. Um, we've used naltrexone in the past for opioid addictions at doses of you know, 50 to 150 milligrams or so. In this case, low-dose naltrexone, we're talking about doses of 1.5 to 6 milligrams. So very, very different. And that, therefore, it has different effects. In our paper, we showed that low-dose naltrexone binds on to the mu opioid receptor, inhibiting the mu opioid receptor, which is an inhibitor of the TRIP-M3. In other words, we inhibit the inhibitor, hmm. therefore releasing TRIP-M3 and allowing it to do its job. So in uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, it's threat. The brain felt threat. Mm. Um, Now, many chronic fatigue syndrome patients get to there through an infection like EBV. That's a very common one. um, Epstein-Barr virus, um, kissing disease, mononucleosis. And for some reason, their body was never truly able to clear the disease. Hence, we know that there was an NK cell dysfunction. Um, And this constant threat that's stimulating your body along with the normal pressures of day-to-day life. I mean, a lot of chronic fatigue syndrome patients are type A personality go-getter type people, you know, 
They're, they've got mortgages to pay, jobs to go to, children to look after. And when you don't give your body a chance, or rather you are unable to give your body that chance to heal, your body will shut you down somehow. On a on a very high level, um, very high level, because, yeah, mm-hmm. this is um, it, all these, you know, um, chronic illnesses like, you know, chronic fatigue or POTS or whatnot, are, would those be considered autoimmune conditions, given the fact that, you know, as you were mentioning earlier, it kind of necessarily stems from the gut and mm-hmm. leaky gut. And then those, I suppose, foreign bodies, our bodies perceive those as foreign invaders and then mm-hmm. it's almost like all these conditions that you're, you know, describing POTS, whatnot, mm-hmm. are those considered autoimmune conditions? So um, there are definitely some papers which describe uh, CFS specifically um, as so- some CFS. As, don't forget, CFS is actually a very, very blanket term yeah. for anybody who gets to, you know, that six month, 12 month mark who've got, you know, fatigue that cannot be explained by any other reason. So there are lots of reasons why patients get to CFS. And I think it's it has done them a disservice and it's difficult for the field as well to do more research because we're calling a lot of things, um, a lot of, uh, not diseases, but a lot of processes that get a patient to fatigue. We're calling all of it CFS as if it is one disease process, which it's not. Mm. So that's the first thing to be aware of. So certainly there are some patients who have some sort of autoimmunity when it comes to uh, their CFS. Is CFS an autoimmunity in general? I do not think so, personally. Neither do I feel that way about POTS. Okay. I, um, I think the first thing is that I am definitely a doctor who believes that most patients with most of their conditions, even something... Um, even difficult things like some dementias, I I truly believe in the body's ability to heal. And I also truly believe in that a lot of the time, the body isn't failing as such. It's just that it is working so hard to protect you. Yeah, to survive. for, For survival, that it's no longer wired for optimization. And yeah. it looks like a chronic disease, but it's... Yeah, you know, I, I autoimmune, autoimmune is, a, is a funny one. I mean, a lot of the thing about uh, autoimmunity is that um, it usually stems from some sort of widespread inf- uh, out of control inflammatory process in the and then your immune system starts attacking your own body because it's you know, like an innocent bystander or it looks very similar molecular mimicry or something like that. Mm. But I've seen patients heal from autoimmune. So... I don't like I don't like using words that patients associate with mm, a lifelong disability or a lifelong illness. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, look, as far as things, the pot parts, I've I've had patients heal from pots, and um, you know, for, for me, it's about looking forward and getting them the help that they deserve need and empowering them to to try to you know uncover stones or and look under every stone for 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 answers yeah because patients deserve that mm-hmm. and then the second tangent to my prior question like you know on a very very high level would you like also describe 
you know, it's almost like our autonomic nervous systems are just going into complete overdrive. Yes. Okay. Um, which, I mean, it explains, explains a lot. I don't know if you want to just give a brief definition of what the autonomic nervous system is for those listeners who may not know. Yeah, so the autonomic nervous system is the nervous nervous system that you don't really control. That is the nervous system which is you know, responsible for your heart rate and your blood pressure and your respiratory rate. Interestingly enough, we have we are able to um, to influence it. So you know when someone says to you when you're really stressed and you're like, <laughs> and someone says to you just calm down, just calm down, breathe breathe the reason why that it actually does work is because if you breathe in a particular way you know box breathing four in hold four out four hold four and you do that over and over again you actually trick your autonomic nervous system into thinking that you're not stressed mm. because you can't possibly be running from a saber-toothed tiger if you're if you're breathing in such a way you know so we do have we do have some influence over the autonomic nervous system. I think that um, you know you and I have definitely seen um, a rise in autonomic nervous system dysregulation. People with POTS, for example, you go from lying to standing, and all of a sudden your blood, your heart rate skyrockets because you're trying to compensate for the inability of your um, blood vessels and muscles to contract appropriately to push the blood up against gravity towards your head. These are meant to be looked after by the autonomic nervous system. These things are not meant for you to have to consciously think of blood vessels contracting so that you push blood, you know. And interestingly enough, the seat of the autonomic nervous system, you know, it's very close to or it's in the same area, depending on specifically which nucleus you're looking at. But it's towards the back of the head, near the cerebellum, brainstem. This, these, these are considered your ancient brain. This goes back to evolutionary mechanisms. These things have been conserved over time. It's our prefrontal cortex, the front of our head, which is more modern. This is where we do language and creativity and mathematics. But you are nothing without your autonomic nervous system. You are nothing without your cerebellum, which is, you know, responsible for balance, for example, because this ancient part of your brain is responsible for the th threat perceptions and the outputs of your body in response to those threat perceptions. Sure. I, I mean... <laughs> I have so many questions. Um, so, um, I mean, you mentioned breathing, for example, and I recently interviewed Lee Yuen as well, which was really, really cool. And I wow. mean, I think for for people, I think what are some of like, I don't know, maybe the lowest hanging fruit or just some actionable things that people can be made aware of in general of how to, I mean, if it's trying to put yourself into a parasympathetic state or in general, I know this is a very, very broad question and it's, it's yeah, I don't know if you have any actionable things. I mean, I, I, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you prior, you mentioned that you've, you've, you've seen the most amazing, um, almost like reversal of autoimmune conditions and, 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 mm -hmm. and some other complex conditions. Like what is, what is in practice, like what are the mechanisms behind 
I, essentially, what are the protocols? What are the things that you've seen really help wow. people? Um, so I like to bring up um, a couple of patients who have been very profound for me in the last uh, few years. One is, is a 20, early 20, I think she was 23 year old female. She, um, how did it start? A few years ago. She, I think she had a, a mold sensitivity. So she, from a, a skin prick test, her allergist actually did see that she actually does have a mold allergy. But anyway, she didn't realize this at the time, but she was living in a moldy home. She started to get more and more sick. And of course, from a um, you know, biochemical perspective, biomolecular bio perspective, we know that her threat receptors are being activated, activated, activated. And when threat receptors are being activated, um, they, they get twitchy. Thresholds for activation go down. And she was starting to get more and more sick. And then she left that house. And that's great. So then the brain gets a bit of a reprieve. However, she moved into another home with even worse mold problems. Oh, no. And basically, it's like a baseball bat to her. And she got so sick, she wound up in a wheelchair. Now, I was uh, referred her by the immunologist that I work with. And she had, by this stage, she'd been looked after for two years by um, conventional doctors who were doing a brilliant job of, you know, trying to, to stabilize her. By this stage, she was diagnosed with mast cell activation syndrome, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, POTS. She'd been also diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which we know these three things tend to go hand in hand. And a geneticist was actually called in as well. I mean, she proven, like objectively, she had these three things. Her tryptase was through the roof, whole body histamine all over the place. Her skin prick testing showed that she was sensitive and, and angry to everything. Um, tilt table testing and cardiologists showed that she had POTS. I mean, this was objectively, she was unwell. Mm. Now, I wish I could say that I was a doctor that fixed her, but I wasn't. In fact, this patient fixed herself. She was put um, on IVIG, which got her um, out of bed and back into a wheelchair, but that was basically it. And eventually the doctors that were looking after her said, look, we're not quite sure what's happening. You have some sort of autoimmunity of unknown origin, but we think that you're probably not going to make two or three years. Now she'd just gotten married um, before she got sick and she, I guess, is one of those patients that just rolled up her sleeves and said, rolled up her sleeves and said, not today. And she started being her own advocate, started Googling, started doing, you know, all sorts of things. And she found the Gupta program, uh, guptaprogram.com, I think it is. And this is a autonomic nervous system retraining program. It focuses on the uh, amygdala and insula. And essentially, it's the kind of stuff that we're talking about. She also, at the same time, did a carnivore diet. Now, I need to stress that this was right for this patient, and there was every chance that this could have gone wrong for her as well. So you really do need to speak to a doctor or a nutritionist or someone before you implement anything that I'm talking about. Um, but she also found the carnivore diet, and for some reason it resonated with her, it sung to her, so she implemented both. Within a few months she was walking 
Wow. Um, and that was one and a half, maybe two years ago. She got herself 90% better and that's when she found me because she had heard that I at least understood the carnivore diet and she just wanted to see was there anything that she could do that could get herself just that 1%, you know, 5%, 100% to where she needed to be. And so, you know, yeah, I I, um, I do understand the carnivore diet and for the right patients in the right circumstances, there has been some anecdotal evidence to show that it can be helpful and I can understand why. Um, and she now runs her own business. She has got, as far as I remember, um, because I last spoke to her maybe about three or four months ago, she's well, she's 100% well. She's off all medications. She no longer meets the criteria from MCAS or POTS or EDS for that reason. And I have never seen, and neither had the immunologist, had never seen someone come back from an EDS diagnosis. Wow. That is so inspiring because firstly, this this young woman did not let any diagnosis define her. And that's, I mean, a lot of, mm-hmm. unfortunately, uh, yeah, I have my own opinions on diagnoses, et cetera, et cetera, yep. and taking that, you know, persona on. But it's just remarkable that when you put the body in the right environment, you remove the triggers, you put it into the right environment conducive to healing, the body will heal itself. Now, you know, I think that, look, for me, hope is the absence of despair because I know that people can get upset when talking about stories like this because, oh, that's, that's not the norm, that's an exception. But it is in the exceptions, it is in the exceptional that we learn something about the norm, surely. Yeah. You cannot brush off anecdotal evidence of XYZ, especially when plenty of specialists and objective data has been derived from it and say that this does this shouldn't count, this shouldn't matter because it's a miracle and it's a one and one one of a kind. I'm already you know preempting people getting upset about the story or the next one I'm about to tell you. Um, and I just wanted to cut that off at the past because this patient introduced me to the very idea of psychoneuroimmunology. Up to that point, I had been practicing some aspects to that, just naturally. I think any of us doctors who spend the time listening to patients and understand that psychosocial, spiritual aspects, emotional aspects can be very, very important. Um, But she was the one that introduced me to the Gupta program. I've since met Ashok. Um, He brought himself back from CFS and being bedridden from a year. I mean, for a year, this there is definitely something something to be said about trying things that have got little to no downside. There are three uh, like three criteria in an algorithm that I get my patients to to run any sort of you know, program, supplement, dietary change or whatever it is through it first before they give the go ahead. And again, everything should be done in concert with your health practitioner, right? That is one. What are the possible benefits of what you're about to do? Breath work. What are the possible benefits of breath work? Two, what are the possible negatives? You know, having seen enough breath work practitioners, seeing, having seen enough types of breath works, I know that some breath work can be triggering for patients, especially if they've got PTSD or anything like that. So you have to choose 
you know, um, slightly more uh, less triggering, um, like holotropic breathing, for example. You need to choose something a little bit uh, less less activating. And then number three, what are the opportunity costs of the breathwork that you're going to do? A lot of the time, the opportunity costs will usually involve, you know, money or time. Um, and the algorithm really does help when you're dealing with more higher order problems, like in cancer, uh, where you don't want to be doing an intervention um, that then takes other interventions off the table. You know, if that, if um, if you are someone who wants to to start low, go slow, then you know you speak to your doctor and you make sure that. You're doing this, the interventions that you're trialing, you're doing it in a safe, measured way, um, not doing too many things at one time so that you know what may or may not be working, what may or may not be causing side effects. Um, and so those are the, the three uh, questions that I tell my patients to ask themselves when trialing anything. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this patient did... Uh, Gupta's program did well. She tried the carnivore diet. It did well for her. The second story I wanted to tell you about was about, um, again, this patient had been referred to me by um, an immunologist. This patient was a 63-year-old female who was incredibly emaciated. She was so skinny, so malnourished because she was, she, she was food sensitive. She just couldn't eat almost anything. She was down to boiled chicken, mashed potatoes and peas, I think, or something like that. And she had incredible food chemical sensitivities. Now, for if there's anybody there wondering what food chemical sensitivities are, if it's a real thing, Australia actually happens to be or was the forefront for food chemical sensitivity research at Monash University. Uh, Prince of Wales as well in New South Wales, this uh, university hospital also has um, a food chemical department. And the food chemicals that we are very interested in are glutamates, biogenic amines, which includes histamine, um, and the salicylates. Anyway, so this patient um, was apparently very, very uh, triggered by foods. But interestingly, when she was sent to me, she could smoke cigarettes. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. I was um, very skeptical, very skeptical then about her apparent chemical sensitivities if she couldn't smoke cigarettes. But the second or third consult that I had with her, um, I had noticed that she had a lot of mouth, a, a lot of amalgams in her mouth and uh, in her teeth. And so I said, look, I would, I know that you've got osteoporosis, um, your teeth in your mouth uh, like bones in your mouth, basically. If you have a decrease in bone density, there is a chance that you have a decrease in teeth density as well. So these mercury amalgams may be, may be leaking and they may be tripping some of these threat receptors in the mouth, trips. I think that it would be prudent to get rid of them so that we can at least knock over that one domino, take that off the table and see what we're left with. And she was very hesitant, which led on to the next part of psychoneuroimmunology. And I said, why are you hesitant? Because she, she doesn't like anything being done with her mouth. Now, I apologize for what I'm about to say next because it can be triggering for some patients, but um, for some people who may be listening, but 
I found out it's because when she was a child, um, she had been abused in her mouth. So the entire the entire direction of my consults with her pivoted, and it was about addressing the fear and the shame. Now I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I mostly did it in that I'm like, okay, we need to get this done. I think that we need to get this done. But let's let's do this together. Let's do this slowly. She had a counselor, a psychologist involved, which is great. And we found a small dentist with small hands, which is what was her requirement. And this beautiful dentist allowed her daughter to, um, this patient's daughter to be in with her when she was getting her amalgams done, holding her hand, playing her favorite music, you know, having treats for her in the staff room after, you know, these sorts of wonderful things. And this patient was able to experience a positive, negative experience involving her mouth. She had all four amalgams out, two of which had been leaking. So that, that was good that they were taken out. Within two weeks, the patient was able to eat everything. Wow. Now, I don't usually have such profound changes as well. And this is why these two patients have really stuck out for me, you know. And I realized why she was able to smoke cigarettes. It's because, as I sort of alluded to before, the nervous, scared, frustrated, terrified lizard brain had been tagging all these different foods as threats for whatever reason. But her cigarette smoking had always been her escape, Mm. her safe space. It had always been her parasympathetic thing. So her brain just didn't tag it as a problem. When you removed the threats, the constant leaking of the mercury, when she had a positive negative experience and no longer feared the, you know, put well, or rather she put her her lizard brain at rest to it to a certain extent with regards to what was passing through her lips and into her mouth, she she was able to open that space up to heal herself. Wow. Wow. That I mean <laughs> Just to be so profound because so many people are just not conscious that something that, I mean, it's not necessarily this mysticism that just causes you to be so sick. Like there are always reasons, there's always a root and it could be as simple as, well, not simple. I'm not, I'm not like trying to simplify trauma and stuff, but like these things that we don't necessarily would ever have considered, but anything to do with our human bodies has a significance on our human bodies. I mean, if you zoom out completely, it makes so much sense. And you briefly, I would love to elaborate a little bit on, you know, fillings because and and any dental work, I mean, that's also not whatever like enters your mouth or your skin or whatever, like that is not insignificant to our bodies. As we've mentioned, Um, I mean, a lot of people do have fillings. I don't know if you want to I mean, you mentioned mercury and stuff. If you want to just maybe inform yeah. people that it's, fillings are not necessarily passive things. Like they do have an effect on the body. No, exactly. Look, um, because for some reason, mercury amalgams are still considered controversial. And, you know, I'm not going to stir up the hornet's nest. However, um, it's amazing, isn't it? Like what, how how toxic this particular substance 
is. We know how toxic mercury can be. In fact, in Europe, I believe, they've actually passed a law to make uh, mercury thermometers and what have you illegal, right? Because we know how toxic this stuff can be. Why, with the technology that we have today, with the new um, substances that we have, why would you still use mercury? Why, why run the risk? You know, at least in this particular story with that patient, I, there's a, a, a reason that I can use with um, doctors who are questioning, and that is, yeah, in her case, she had osteoporosis. Her, her, her teeth were losing density as well, and the mercury was leaking. But if you didn't have osteoporosis, should you keep your mercury amalgams in your mouth? Why run that risk? Yeah. It is a toxic substance. We are so much more evolved now to, um, with regards to our technologies that there is no reason to be using that. And um, I personally um, am very, very close with the, some of the dentists from Sydney Holistic Dental Center. They're the, not the best dentists that I've ever come across. Ron Ehrlich, Louis Ehrlich, in fact, both of them have their own podcast, to be honest with you. And they and I've been on both of them. And they would they absolutely refuse to use mercury amalgams. When they remove mercury amalgams from people's mouths and teeth, they, it is a whole rigmarole because it is mercury vapor is so dangerous. Yeah. I, I would encourage anybody who's skeptical or, or wondering or whatever, just type in mercury. Uh, neurotoxic or mercury uh, health problems and PubMed, P-U-B-M-E-D. Even if the chances are 1%, why risk it? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a good precaution. I mean, also, like, if you are going to get your mercury fillings taken out, like, it has to be done appropriately because even though they may be still out, it still can affect the body like it's a very oh, yes. you can't just have it taken out and then that's it like there's right right it's dangerous to you do really that you should if you're going to get them removed make sure that your dentist understands smart s-m-a-r-t safe mercury uh, amalgam removal technique okay that's a nice acronym for people to remember yeah. it's um, a whole rigmarole like it's and it's very very important yeah i mean it's also the same with chelation like if you get tested for heavy metals or whatnot like just mm -hmm. completely getting chelation, like it actually make you very sick because our yes, fats, are, yeah, it's an endocrine system that our that our, our fat cells hold the toxins in. So yeah, I think if you are going to go down this route, like it definitely precaution to do it with someone who like knows knows what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when yeah. you chelate heavy metals out of your body, you you're you're chelating all the metals, including zinc copper things that you you need you yeah know? so um although interestingly enough there was a a study um uh when was it 2019 2020 it was about the aip the autoimmune protocol um which has been shown to be you know effective hashimoto's i believe they're doing an aip now for rheumatoid arthritis but anyway in this particular study with um Hashimoto's and using the AIP, they um, actually did some testing on these patients when they were enrolling them in the in the study, and they found that some of them actually did have higher uh, heavy metals. Now, living in a 
first world country in a city is you're bound to be exposed to things like lead and mercury and all the rest of it. Like this is not, you know, I think a lot of people for some reason are running around thinking that that is absolutely impossible in this day and age. And it, no, hang, no, hang on a second. That is that is more the norm than not. Mm. And our bodies do a very good job most of the time of trying to help you get rid of it. Um, but, you know, we obviously don't do ourselves favors either. Um, and sometimes it needs a little bit of help. Anyway, so um, in the AIP, the autoimmune protocol, also known as a modified paleo, they because the protocol wasn't designed to help with heavy metals, all they said to the to the women was, um, you know, herbs, intake more herbs. These have been shown to help chelate those heavy metals out of the body. At the end of the six weeks, I believe it was ten weeks. Oh, I can't remember. At the end of the the study majority of the women either dropped down their thyroid medications or came off the thyroid medications completely. That's the profound, amazing thing about how the power of diet, right? Yeah. The second thing was that they also then found that these women's uh, with the heavy metals, those also decreased as well. And they were like, wow. So what happened? What, what, and these women said the ones whose the heavy whose heavy metal loads actually decreased said, well, you told me to eat more herbs, so I did. <laughs> so we actually know that herbs, and if you Google this, right, or rather in PubMed, I prefer everything through PubMed so that you know that there are actual studies peer mostly you know peer-reviewed and whatever what have you. Herbs, mercury or herbs, heavy metal chelation. It's all there. It's amazing. What are some of those herbs that are helpful? Uh, cilantro, um, definitely coriander, c- cilantro, coriander, and um, parsley. And this doesn't make a difference if they're fresh or freeze-dried? or. That is a good question. I don't know the answer. Of course, I think I'd be leaning towards fresh, and but the freeze-dried is not necessarily freeze-dried. Um, if something is snap-frozen, then maybe that can be helpful because we know that that can be helpful for proper vegetables, let's just say, with regarding, um, you know, vitamin and mineral content. Um, And then, of course, when you freeze something, you also have to see how low the temperatures do drop because um, in vegetables that contain isothiocyanates, for example, when you actually break apart the cells, and this can happen, sometimes happen when you freeze them for too long a period or um, it goes too cold. When the cell is actually broken, the enzyme myrosinase that converts the isothiocyanate into sulforaphane is is released. So you actually decrease the sulforaphane, which is a a helpful um, supplement. I think you maybe have heard of sulforaphane. You actually decrease the sulforaphane load of vegetables if you incorrectly freeze them interesting how did i get on that tangent anyway yeah i don't know if it's fresh or frozen (laughs) (laughs) it's okay i think people can also do their own their own research um i mean going back to the whole mercury and stuff like and toxins i mean even if you may not necessarily have a mercury filling or whatnot like you know even scientists and dentists even just working with the materials i mean our skin is also oh, an yeah. organ so they also you can get affected and I mean they've even I've seen a lot of research with people who work in fast food restaurants or and they're like frying food in vegetable oils and if you're inhaling the 
you know, yeah. the oxidized oil. I mean, it affects your it it affects your health. Nothing oh, yeah. nothing is ever insignificant. Right. Chinese cooks cough, you know, because they use very, very high temperatures in wok cooking, for example. And then you have these seed oils, which are all oxidized anyway. Yeah. Um, you actually aerosolize some of these terrible, terrible chemicals, which then you inhale and exactly what you said, you get, you can get unwell, you know, but where yeah. our society in general, we have this terrible situation now where we, you know, being, not being optimal has been normalized. Yeah. That is that, a problem. And just because it's normal, I mean, just because it's common doesn't mean it's normal. Exactly. And I think that, exactly. I mean, it, that extends into so much, any symptom. And I, I was going to bring this up earlier, like any symptom that you are experiencing, and it's very likely that it's a cluster of symptoms. I mean, from anxiety, depression, uh, skin rashes, I mean, sleep, infertility, like a whole lot of, like these symptoms, you can't, mustn't ignore them. Even if it's like congestion or coughing or yes. reflux, like these are symptoms are not insignificant things. And they're almost like they are the gateway into getting further and further into, I mean, it's not, as we mentioned, like just because it's common doesn't mean it's normal. Like, Right. The, the symptoms are a way of your body talking to you. Exactly. Right? It's trying to give you a message. And the more you ignore them, the more the messenger will start to scream, the louder it will talk, the more messengers will, will come out of the woodwork to give you that which you are ignoring. Yeah. And I mean, I suppose you can call it a bit of like gaslighting. Like if you go to a doctor and you've got all of these symptoms and you're just feeling, even if it's just, you're just feeling off, like, I think too many people are told that it's just in your head. And I think what I'm also trying to bring about yeah. is that it's not in your head. Like it could be something you've mentioned, mold, infections, gut issues, mercury, heavy metals, like even just trauma. Right. You know? Yes. Yes. hundred You know, I mean, yeah. If, if you, if you even, I think so many, most patients are quite intuitive, right? They know when something is wrong. If you're, if you don't feel heard by your doctor, and I'm and I'm putting this back on the patient, right? I'm not saying the doctor's not listening to you, but if you don't feel heard, you need to find someone who who you do feel safe with, that you do feel heard with. Never stay in a situation that doesn't sing to you, that doesn't that doesn't allow you to to feel safe enough to talk about mm. these sorts of things, you know? Yeah, it's like that with a job that is not necessarily who you are or a relationship that is toxic or whatnot. It's the same. You have every right. Exactly. Essentially, right. You're, you're paying the doctor to work for you, essentially. Right. Yeah. There's this, um, I wish we could go back to this this uh, system that they had in China, apparently. I, I, I still don't know. Is it just a, a meme or a myth or whatever? But apparently, um, back in the day in China, you paid your doctor when you were well. And so then wow. you would stop paying him when you were sick. And so the doctor was very motivated to get you better. Yeah. I mean, essentially, that's what <laughs> you shouldn't have to go back to your doctor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, that's, that's very, <laughs> I love that so much. Um, now, before just in closing, I suppose, I just, I wanted to ask you just a bit more practically, like, um, the work with psychoneuroimmunology, like when you mentioned that you go to those deep 
places, even if it's like a working on each thought, like would you like bring in like CBT work along like the protocol of psychoneuroimmunology? Like how specific and detailed like does the, I suppose, journey? So, you know, there are a thousand and one psychological techniques, which I know very little about because I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist. What I do know is that because there are so many, it tells you something about them. First, there's a demand, and we know that, we understand that. Second, there is not one that fit, that suits everybody. So I always say to patients, it is so important that you keep searching for a practitioner that sings to you. In other words, it could be CBT, it could be MD, EMDRs, it could be um, tapping, it could be hypnotherapy, it could be any number of combination of these things, which may be able to get you where you need to go. But more importantly, and I say this to all my patients, if every doctor and practitioner disappeared tomorrow, you can still heal because healing is within you. I love that so much. Or rather, yeah, or rather, you know, and I'm always sort of thinking about how people might misconstrue what I'm saying. Of course, I'm not talking about cures for everything, right? But opening up that space for healing, let, opening up that space for a patient to take a, be able to take a breath, allowing the body to be able to do what it would normally want to do as far as healing goes. These things can and are found within yourself spiritually emotionally however however you want to see it right we just need yeah. to give your body the tools it needs and the space now that's not to say patients should just sort themselves out that's not what i'm saying i'm just saying that patients need to give themselves more kudos than they do mm. that finding a practitioner finding the next big thing is it can be helpful but don't pin all your hopes on it right because mm. at the end of the day yeah, at the mm. end of the day, you have to walk in your shoes. Like, no one else can walk it for you. That's right. Ha yeah, 100%, you know. So the some of the specific things that I do is that I find most, or not that are the best things out there. It's just that I, they seem to me. Main thing that I do with my patients, apart from, you know, gut work and uh, threat receptor modulation with certain types of herbs or supplements or medications like... Um, you know, low-dose naltrexone or ketotophen or whatever it is. Some of the more psychological stuff that I try and do with patients alongside a practitioner that they really resonate with is compassion. Self-compassion, compassion for others. That's really, really profound. Compassion and gratitude. Wow, this is a huge, huge combo. You add to that positive mind frame, uh, mindsets. You know, good sleep, good quality sleep, good food, bam, you're indestructible, you know? Yeah, no, literally. <laughs> it's, it's so beautiful and empowering. And it's really, as you mentioned right in the beginning, it's just mimicking how evolutionarily we're supposed to be living. Right, right, exactly. Get out in the sun, hug someone, have compassion and forgiveness, take it. Take it all a little bit slower. You know, don't sweat the small stuff. All these things we all know. We just need to realize how profound those things actually are. And the fact 
that there is a, you know, psych, um, scientific reason for why these things work as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's down regulating those threat receptors. Are there, are there blood, specific blood tests for, I don't know, trips or, or are they, no. like, what are your, no? No, no, unfortunately, no, not yet. Um, so this is all still what we see or are able to uh, do in a lab in a, uh, at a university and at the university that um, we're doing work with, when I mentioned before, the NCNED, that's Griffith University here in Australia on the Gold Coast in Brisbane. Um, no, no, no blood tests, but you know, I'd much rather treat the patient in front of me anyway exactly. than treat numbers exactly. on a page. Yeah, I mean, it's like similar to any, you know, like health tracking device. Like if your aura ring gives you a bad score, but you feel like you're good, like are you going to take on what the <laughs> piece of technology? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. keep going back to how do you feel? <laughs> 100%. I love that. I'm in alignment with so much of what you've spoken about. And I wish I, I mean, I could speak to you for hours, but I am weary of your time. And before I ask you your final question, where can people find you and the work that you're doing yeah, the um, the best place to go is probably my website, um, Lesler, so dralivialesler.com. Um, that will tell you sort of my movements through the world and, and also which clinics I happen to be uh, working with at that time. Um, I definitely welcome uh, patients uh, it, through my doors in my practice here in Sydney or in London, but just know that, you know, healing really can be found in a hug with your family and in good food and in good sleep. So try to implement the basics first because you want to push over those major dominoes and see what's left. And yeah, looking forward to hopefully helping some of your your listeners. Yeah, I mean, just please never stop doing the work that you're doing um really like just empowering the individual and just making being healthy and optimizing your life actionable and simple because it shouldn't have to be complicated um exactly and i think i always just, say that uh, you know just i deal with complex chronic conditions but complex doesn't have to mean complicated yeah i love mm-hmm. that so much i mean a lot of people are unfortunately too many people are struggling but I think you know the underlying message that firstly it's not this thing that's just come out of nowhere like they are there's always a root cause maybe causes for for Mm. a whole lot of things and to meet a practitioner like a doctor who is so aware and holistic of all the things is for me like such a relief that there are people out there like you and I wish there hopefully more and more people will be (laughs) will be out there like yeah I mean I wish that you were in South Africa because then I would definitely come and see you (laughs) (laughs) oh thanks Kelsey I I really do appreciate that thank you so much um yeah so just I'm so grateful to just pick have your have have some time with you and pick your brain and also just even more grateful to have met you um and I just want to ask you like is it what what are you grateful for today because as you mentioned great gratitude is is huge huge you know I am grateful for this an opportunity with a passionate, intelligent person such as yourself, an opportunity to talk about what I love doing. That is my work in medicine, psychoneuroimmunology, giving patients hope 
thank you so much. That's the gratitude. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Yeah, I think all my listeners are saying thank you, thank you, thank you. It's a choir. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Olivia. It has been an absolute honor. Thank you. All right. See ya. As I have mentioned, no one was born to suffer in this world. You are not broken. You are merely just a human trying to survive. Whatever you are going through right now, just know that you are not alone and you have more power than you think you do in reclaiming ownership of your body, mind, spirit, and life. I absolutely loved every second of speaking with Dr. Olivia. She is an absolute wealth of knowledge. And immediately after I stopped the recording, Olivia sent me all the links to the studies and research she spoke about. So if you want to join us on the information learning train, the links are all in the show notes of this episode. Let Dr. Olivia and I know any thoughts and feedback you may have from this episode. I highly recommend you give her a follow on Instagram and most certainly check out her website. If you think of anyone who would benefit from hearing this episode and other episodes on this podcast, please share, share, share. Sharing is caring and leaving up to a five-star rating and review really helps grow this show and let more people see and hear its content. Don't forget about your special 10% discount on any Oxford HealthSpan product when you enter Kelsey, K-E-L-S-E-Y, all capitals, as the discount code at checkout. And until next time, stay safe, stay real. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Human Theatre. I hope you learned something new. Don't forget to like, subscribe, share, and give a rating or a review on whatever app you are listening to this podcast on. I would love to hear your feedback, so please don't hesitate to reach out on Instagram or via email. All the links are in the show notes. Remember, you are your most important person in this world. Keep shining your unique light. Until next time, 